Hey everybody, this is Justin Jackson, host of the Justin Time Sports Podcast, where in today's episode we'll be discussing the world of sports returning from the MLB to the NBA to NCAA. We'll talk about the MLS for a brief second. We'll even discuss the NASCAR and we'll have our best for last segment. Now I hope you guys sit back and get ready to learn something. All right, guys, and we're back, and we're going to start off with the MLB still trying to get their season started. At this point, I'm honestly beginning to get annoyed with them because they're fighting over pennies on the dollar. Honestly, at this point, I honestly don't believe it matters. I think at this point, you've got owners trying to fight over pennies. I mean, I get their perspective. They're trying to cut their losses. Uh, We've got Rob Manfred saying that revenues can be down 70%. Okay, what's 70% of almost 12 billion? This is not going to matter that much to those owners. Now, there was reports that came out earlier in the season where, earlier in the year, I should say, that, you know, it's going to be down $600,000 a game and owners are going to lose all this money and they may never recover financially. They made almost $12 billion. They will be fine. I promise. And the owners know that they will be fine. But the owners think if they can throw this stuff out in the media where baseball is threatened and the players are greedy and we're just trying to bring baseball back, that they'll gain fan vote and they'll gain fan support. But it's not going to work. And the Players Association isn't going to cave. They have the strongest player association in professional sports. And the owners know that. So they're trying to beat the players through the media. But to get down to it, uh, Commissioner Rob Manfred has spoken to a couple of different outlets and he guarantees the season. Now, players in their latest proposal have proposed an 89 game season, which is a little over half of a regular season. And they will get 100 percent of their prorated salary. So if a guy was scheduled to make 30 million, he'd make a little over 15 million, which would be his correct prorated salary for a little over half the season. He gets a little over half his salary. That way, players only lose the money in the games they don't play, which the players have agreed to because they're basically saying that they're going to make their X amount of dollars per game. So there's 89 games on the schedule. You get a little over half your revenue instead of the 162 game revenue that you would normally receive. Now, the owner's latest proposal was a 76 game season with 75% of the proration. So back to my $30 million example, if you were to make $30 million in a 162-game season and it was cut down to 76, well, that's a little under half. So let's say you're going to make 14. Well, they owners want to give you 75% of that 14. So you'd make 11, somewhere in there, a million dollars instead of the 14, which would be the correct proration. Now, this is interesting because as I spoke about last week, the owners stated they were not going to counteroffer that after the players made their last offer before the offer for the 89 game season the owners rejected it and said they weren't going to counter offer and i know and i pointed out that the nfl owners did this to the cba now the difference between the nfl play association and the mlb play association is strength and continuity the nfl player association has a lot of guys at the bottom that 
will vote or won't even vote at all but if they do vote they'll vote for short-term gains they'll vote for improves on minimums and stuff the owners throw out to try and get the lower guys on the roster to agree and as opposed to the mlbpa there's a lot more money in baseball so the guys aren't nearly as desperate uh guys who are used to only making 25 30 grand a year know how to budget they've been budgeting well since they've got into baseball because they aren't making big dollars yet they aren't even major league players yet and so you've got those kind of situations going on the owners can't break the mlbpa i mean when the astros cheating scandal came out and you have players in major league baseball bad mouthing the astros it made national news and it made national news because the mlb does not do that versus his own they protect their own at any and all costs they make sure that Everything that goes on with the players is protected. Those players are helped by other players. And you got a situation where that's the strongest fraternity. I mean, those guys really protect their own. So when you've got, like when the Astros did their cheating scandal, you've got players openly talking about how the Astros didn't deserve their title and they're cheaters and bad-mouthing the Astros. It was a shock. And so with the owners attempting to break up such a powerful and group that's come together that they're a very close-knit group and they're a group that will not bend now rob manfred the mlb commissioner has the power to just flat out nail a season he can just straight up say okay we're gonna have a shortened season the target date or the target number for that shortened season would be 48 games now the only way he could do this is if he guaranteed a full proration of the salary and so that being said, you can't have a situation where it's 48 games. He tells the players, you're only getting half a salary. It would be 48 games, which is about a fourth of the season. And they would get a fourth of that money. So again, back to my $30 million example, you would get seven and a half million. If you make 20 grand, you would get five grand because you would get the proration of what you would normally get during a season. If you make 200 grand, you know, you would get 25 grand. So I don't know. If the player association will be willing to bend in terms of avoiding that last ditch effort rob manfred is determined to have a baseball season that's obvious we see that in all his interviews we see that in he was talking about it before the draft and during the draft and a very shortened mlb draft he was talking about guarantee he's going to guarantee the season there will be baseball in 2020 he has a calendar he's trying to stick to because it's not like the nba the nba can shift their schedule it doesn't matter they play inside so what you play basketball games at the start of the season in january 1st in toronto you're inside anyway who cares football half the season's in the cold some of the best games in football when people go that's football weather it's soldier field in chicago in the snow it's a frozen tundra of lambeau field it's when kansas city the snow flare is starting to fall a lot of those stadiums, A, are either in inside or they're known for their snow. So football can play in cold weather. You don't want to see baseball in cold weather. A lot of times people struggle early because the ice and the chill hasn't broken from a Chicago. They haven't broken from Pittsburgh. It hasn't broken from St. Louis entirely yet early in the season. Now when the weather heats up, the bats heats up, the ball heats up. Baseball comes a lot better. Because baseball in and of itself is a summer sport and lends itself to the summer calendar. Rob Manfred knows this, so he's trying to keep baseball as structured as possible 
by having it finished in September and October. So that way, when the weather really starts to cool off, baseball's finishing. And you don't see a major dip in production and dip in quality of play. If I was the Major League Baseball Players Association, I'm continuing the fight. What do I have to lose? If it comes down to a 48 game schedule anyway, and I'm only getting 25% of my money anyway, what's the hurry? What's the rush? I don't see the benefit of taking a 75% proration where I may gain a couple more million dollars for the upper echelon players, but if I'm middle of the pack guy making $5 million and you tell me, okay, I'm gonna make three for 76 games or two and a half for 48 games, I'd rather take two and a half, save my body and get ready for next season, especially if I'm a guy about to go in for agency. I could have a really good couple of months and all of a sudden now, based on my last year track record, I get a really, really, really big payday in the next season. And with baseball having not even starting, they're gonna take their losses this season. So financially, they'll be more than ready to bounce back next season. And baseball doesn't have a salary cap to begin with. It's merely just a luxury tax to discourage massive spending. Although the Yankees and teams like that, when they're on the verge of being close, spend anyway. So baseball, just get it going. You're beginning to annoy me. Actually, I am quite annoyed. And I know a lot of fans that appreciate baseball are quite annoyed too. And wonder why opening day still has not happened. Or there's no plan. I mean, there's not even a tentative schedule to get this thing going. So baseball, need to get this thing on the road. I mean, the claim to be America's pastime would all but be lost if there's no baseball for a year. It's hard for the casual fan to connect with somebody they didn't see for 18 months. You know, we didn't see Bryce Harper for over a year. We didn't see Mike Trout for over a year. We didn't see Strasburg for over a year. Scherzer, Carlos Correa, and those guys for over a year. It would be really hard for the casual fan to stay connected. And so in order to not suffer massive losses, even going into next year, I think baseball needs to get this thing on the road as soon as possible. They're squabbling over pennies on the dollar and it's beginning to look petty and flat out wrong. And so I think baseball needs to get this thing on the road. And up next, However, we will shift to something that does have a plan and we'll shift to the National Basketball Association and their plan for the quote unquote Orlando bubble. All right, guys, and we are back now. The National Basketball Association, formerly known as the NBA, is going to be continuing their season on July 30th instead of July 31st. Now that one day can mean a lot in terms of playing with Sunday and Monday to avoid the NFL. I know that could be a big thing, but a tentative restart date has been moved to July 30th instead of July 31st. Now, there's several players, namely Carmelo Anthony, that's of the Portland Trailblazers, that is still debating sitting out the season regardless. So Portland has an outside shot at making the playoffs, especially with the play-in tournament. They are one of the four or five Western Conference teams that was invited that were not in the playoffs yet to have an opportunity to make the playoffs with the last eight-game sprint and then the possible play-in tournament. Now, Melo is citing that he still has virus concerns, and I'm sure several other players share that feeling. And I wonder if, let's say, Portland starts off 0-4 and they realize they're gonna have to win their last four games and Memphis is gonna have to tank their last four in order to win. Does Dame Lillard just call it? He had mentioned before that he was willing to go to Orlando or to a neutral site 
if they were to do that, but he wasn't going to play in quote-unquote meaningless games. So if Portland didn't have a mathematical shot or a realistic shot of getting in, he would practice the team, but he wouldn't play in the games. And so Carmelo Anthony is the first big star to voice himself possibly sitting out, even if they have a chance of making the playoffs. Now the NBA is doing several teams a favor. They are expanding the roster to 17 players, including two-way contracts. So those guys on two-way deals in the G League that may have had their season ended, now let's say the Boston Celtics decide they're going to call up Taco Fall. So Taco Fall is going to be available for them in the playoffs and in this stretch run. Or they decide that they need additional point guard help, so they call up Tremont Waters or Carson Edwards, guys who can additionally help them at point guard provide scoring. You've got the Lakers with DeMarcus Cousins floating out there in the wing. They can bring him in as one of their roster spots. And even if he doesn't give you anything, he's back on active roster. And you keep him out of the clutches of another team. Let's say another team wants to sign him either for information or just for his style and ability anyway. DeMarcus Cousins can be a Laker. You've got Joe Kim Noah on the Clippers. He can come up and have an active roster spot. So there's a multitude of things that the NBA is allowing, including 17 players on a roster instead of the standard 15. Now, let's say that Carmelo Anthony decides that, you know, it's just not worth the risk. I'm a made man. I don't want to risk, you know, possibly catching this thing, passing it on to my kids and my family and stuff like that. So he decides to sit out. The NBA is allowing players to be replaced. So Carmelo decides he's out. And Portland goes out and signs, let's say, Jamal Crawford to replace Carmelo Anthony. Well, Carmelo Anthony will still get his salary. It is guaranteed through the NBA. He will still get his salary. And Jamal Crawford will come in, but Carmelo Anthony at no point can return this season. So if Melo is out, citing health concerns, and then Portland all of a sudden makes the playoffs, he can't run back to Orlando and go, I'm back, I'm back, I'm back, I want to play because he would already been deemed out by the NBA. So at no point could he return. And so I don't know if that's something Melo would be willing to risk. But if he does do that, or if another player does that, you know, we might get a guy on the team we haven't heard yet decide that the health risk is too big for the possibility of a championship, especially with your salary being guaranteed. You know, the guys might just sit out and they can be replaced. Um, Also, guys like Jamal Crawford, who may have signed deals earlier in the season, they're not eligible. So you've got Jamal Crawford who was out there, J.R. Smith is out there, Nick Young is out there, just some veteran shooting help that can provide a good spark off the bench for Lakers. The Bucks need further shooting. The Sixers are in dire need of shooting around Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid. Maybe they sign a couple of those guys to get them some real shooting off the bench. You've got a good New Orleans team who's looking for a fourth quarter score. Brandon Ingram can put the ball in the hole, so can Drew Holiday. But let's say you all of a sudden you throw on the floor with them, Jamal Crawford. So now it's Jamal Crawford and Brandon Ingram and Zion and Drew Holiday, and then you got a big in the middle. Or you, you know, one of the guys are struggling, you pull them off and you throw Lonzo Ball on the court or Josh Hart on the court. So when you've got that kind of versatility and you can add guys to the roster, you look at Memphis, maybe they need a fourth quarter score besides John Morant, they add a Jamal Crawford. You've got the Clippers, who are very dependent on Lou Williams. Well, Lou Williams is undersized, and he's going to get hunted and pick and rolls in the fourth quarter. Maybe they go get a guy like Jamal Crawford or Nick Young or J.R. Smith because those players are not eligible to be signed. Now, in terms of scheduling, 
uh, Adrian Wojnarowski of ESPN reported that only eight teams will remain after the 53rd day in Orlando at the worst. So due to the playing tournaments and the regular season and people who will qualify and even the first round of the playoffs, it appears only eight teams will remain in Orlando at the 53 days. So that severely helps in terms of security and that helps in terms of health risk with 14 teams being gone in less than two months. I'm assuming half of those will be gone by the first month. And then with playoff tournaments in the first round, the others will be gone by no later than the middle of the second month of being down there. Now, the NBA and the NBA PA are still ironing out details in regards to protocol with families and security. So obviously, they're trying to keep players in the bubble. They don't want them interacting with fans on rides. They don't want, you know, 25 family members, a person to come down and, you know, because that adds more chance that somebody catches it and they're trying to do their best to prevent people from catching it. It appears that a positive test won't shut the season down. And I know Adam Silver stated that, that a positive test will not end the season. That was one of his concerns in regards to restarting the season was that, you know, let's say one test pops positive. It's a season over because there's no way you're going to shut a whole season down for two weeks and then convince the guys to come back. So Adam Silver is trying to do his best to strongly limit an outbreak. I feel like one, even up to five positive tests, maybe even 10 positive tests will not shut the season down. Those guys get replaced for two weeks, just like an injury. Guy comes in and fills their role and they come back if their team is still in. But maybe an outbreak of 30 or 40 tests within a span of a few days, positive. The season's over. Um, So limiting the amount of fan interaction, not having fans in the building at all, and limiting family to maybe a couple. I know there was reports where they would allow three, four family members if your team gets to the conference finals per player. They would allow, you know, three or four family members to fly in, stay in separate hotels, and be able to come to the games sectioned out, spread all across the little arena that they'll play in at the World Ride of Sports. So I think that would be a good thing for them to have some family there. But I understand the safety concerns. Uh, We look at the German Basketball League and what they're doing. They're putting trackers on their players to ensure that their players do not go out and interact with people and possibly contract the coronavirus and shut the German Basketball League down. Now, when I saw that report, I knew there was no chance the NBA was doing that. Michelle Roberts was going to shoot that down in a second. And Chris Paul was also not going to allow that to happen because that would go against a lot of the trust that the NBA PA has built with Adam Silver. They have a great rapport. You can definitely tell that with the way that Adam Silver handled this. He went to his business partners in the NBA PA with Chris Paul and who in turn spoke with LeBron and Dame Lillard and Kawhi and Kevin Durant and other some of those big names. And basically struck the deal with the players before he even went to the owners and i really liked how he did that because what if the owners came up with a plan the players didn't like and so now you've got adam thinking okay cool i just gotta go talk to the players negotiate with them for a little bit tell them what the plan is we sign this thing keep going and all of a sudden 75 percent of the players are against it and now you have to negotiate with them and then go back to the owners But having the players on board, at least with a skeleton plan, the way they did it, now there's no concern of the players all of a sudden bucking and deciding that, no, we don't want to play under these circumstances. No, we don't want to do one location. No, we don't want to do Orlando. 
any of the other main concerns that they ironed out with Adam Silver and Chris Paul before even going to the ownership group to talk about this. It was a great move. It was a smart move by Adam Silver. And so far, this thing is being handled perfectly. I wish baseball could take some tips from the NBA. Uh, Adam Silver's goal is to be the most popular sport in the world. And with decisions like this, he's well on his way. And now we will shift a little bit. We will discuss the NCAA returning with college football, along with touching on the MLS and their impending return. And we'll be right back after this short break. All right, guys, and we're back. Now, this is going to be a multiple sport section, but I don't think you guys are mind too much. So first, we're going to briefly start with the MLS. Now, they're going to be the first major sport to return as they are returning within the next few weeks. They are going to be opening their season back, fanless, of course. But I didn't think about soccer when I was thinking about the sports that could return early. Uh, soccer, think about it, minimal contact. The only people that touch the ball with their hands is the goalie who's wearing gloves. That minimal contact. They don't have a ton of fans anyway, so the ticket revenue won't be the biggest thing on the planet. You've got the European leagues already starting. So when I you know, saw the different leagues, like the Premier League and stuff overseas are already starting, much bigger leagues than MLS, it didn't dawn on me that, wow, soccer could be a sport that comes back and probably not have any new cases because of the amount of contact. The ball is kicked with their feet. They might bump into each other for a quick second, but I mean, there's no real person-to-person contact in soccer. So there's a couple of moments, obviously, where a sliding tackle may be happening or even an aggressive tackle, but there's no real massive contact in soccer. They're pretty spaced apart most of the time. It actually could be the perfect sport to come back during this virus. It's pretty smart of Major League Soccer to come back for a few weeks, at least until the NBA gets going. They're going to be the only sport on television. I expect ratings to be massive. This could be a situation just like when the World Cup happens and America gets soccer fever. Now, there's no chance the men will ever win the U.S. World Cup, but America gets soccer fever. And the chance of, I believe, will start happening and Americans get wrapped up. And even I admit myself, I'm trying to watch every men's USA match, win, lose or draw because it's a USA and it's the World Cup and it's sports and us arrogant Americans believe we're going to win. We're not. We have no shot. We have barely make it to the group stage, but we believe we're going to win. And so soccer could re-inspire that passion. Uh, Major League Soccer could re-inspire that drive and that American, yes, this is our sport too. We're going to take this over by being the only sport on TV for a few weeks and really get people back to watching Tuesday night sports, Thursday night sports, be a good soccer match between Seattle and LA or even the battle of LA. This would be a great thing for Major League Soccer to be by itself and to have the ability to be solo. Now, we're going to shift gears to college football. We have a lot of the conferences already allowing, quote unquote, voluntary workouts. The quote unquote is very purposeful. Yes, the NCAA has made these workouts, quote unquote, voluntary. And yes, a team cannot, quote unquote, make you attend these workouts but if you look at a school like LSU every single freshman signee they had 
attended these workouts. Every single big name player was at these workouts because these workouts may be voluntary, but in nature, but the coaches are working with them. They are giving them instruction. It's effectively a legal practice as far as NCAA bounds will allow them to go. They are pushing those limits as all great college programs do. I'm sure Oklahoma's doing the same. Alabama's doing the same. That's why you got these coronavirus tests with Alabama tests popping at least five positives. Auburn having at least three. No reports out of LSU whether they had any. But you, I'm sure you've got other great programs with a couple of coronavirus cases because of these voluntary workouts. Guys are back in the locker room. I've seen locker rooms. We've all probably seen locker rooms. These things are not six feet apart. So you've got guys, you know, sharing showers, sharing a locker room, physical contact is football. Guys joke around and horse around. There's going to be a coronavirus positive test. But again, just like the NBA, there will not be an overreaction unless we see a massive countrywide re-outbreak of this thing. If we see a second wave where, you know, every day it's 10,000 new cases, it's 100,000 new cases, it's 10,000 new deaths. I don't think we'll see a slowdown of college football. And I'm glad it'll be back. I predict we'll even have fans by the time this thing gets rolling in September. Maybe we'll be half capacity. But I know Ole Miss and other programs are expecting full fans. Maybe they make them wear masks in the stadium. I don't know how how easy that is to enforce. Impossible to enforce probably once they enter the stadium. But maybe have them wear masks in the stadium and have something say like if you catch the coronavirus, it's not liable to the school. You know, you sign that away in your ticket agreement or something of that nature. But I expect full fans by the time we get this thing rolling in September. And with that being said, I don't expect to see a major drop off in terms of collegiate football revenue. Like I said, in terms of fans, we may only be at 50 to 75 percent fans by the time we get rolling, really rolling in September. So would that cause a small dip in revenues? Absolutely, because losing 25 percent, 25 percent to 50 percent of your fan base will cause a revenue dip for anything. I mean, ticket revenue is ticket revenue. Imagine if the 100,000 seat college football stadium now is only 50,000. Home field advantage gets drastically reduced. Just think about less ticket revenue means less fans in the stadium, which means less workers, you know, less jobs for those people. I mean, that could be a destabilizing thing in a college environment, especially for a lot of those times it was student workers. So maybe that's work study programs they can't have. They can have a trickle down effect. I don't think, again, it should be too drastic because we should have a very good grip on this thing by then and that football will be vastly unaffected or if so very minimally affected and that is a good thing for the sport of football for the fans and the teams and the financial people who benefit from it at a collegiate at a high school and definitely at an nfl professional level and up next we're going to talk just briefly about the changes that nascar is undergoing and how proud i am of the sport for doing so Alrighty guys, and we're back. So NASCAR made huge news by banning the Confederate flag at anything related to NASCAR. So that's racing events, that's promotions, that's autograph signings, anything. The Confederate flag is banned. Now that's huge for NASCAR because the vast majority of the base for NASCAR in terms of their fan base is in the deep south. You see Talladega and Alabama, you've got a lot of the deep south ingrained in the sport and 
they fly the Confederate flag in the South. Uh, it's something huge. It's something they do all the time. You see the classic shots of the NASCAR infield with you know a thousand RVs and maybe 500 of them have the Confederate flag flying just below the United States flag. And so when you got a situation like that and then NASCAR decided to ban the Confederate flag at the behest of Bubba Wallace, who is the first full-time black uh, driver in NASCAR in decades. He uh, suggested that they take it down, that they ban it, and NASCAR, within a couple days, sent out the letter saying it's officially banned. Now, how easy will this be to police? Probably very easy. Um, easier than it might have seen, because again, the flag is flown so prominently so often. So do a situation where you have guys at the gate, security, and if you see a flag, remove it. Um, you know, confiscate it, put it on the ban items list, just like they do uh, open containers and stuff like that. So put it on the ban items list. It can be removed from your person and thrown away or burned or whatever they're gonna do to the flags gotten rid of. And if you see one flying in the infield, you know, ask them to take it down. If they don't take it down, ask them to leave the property. So I want to commend NASCAR for their decision. I want to commend Bubba, Bubba Wallace for having the guts to say it because he's, again, the only full-time black driver in the past few decades. And the fact that he took this stance and the fact that he felt the courage and felt the support in the nation and the movement in the nation in order to make this change and to incite this change in NASCAR, which is a deeply Southern and proud Southern sport. I mean, they were even anti-Jeff Gordon when he first started because he was from California. You know, he wasn't from the South. So again, I want to say great job to Bubba Wallace. I want to say great job to NASCAR, especially when it comes to they just flat out said it's banned. They didn't suggest it. They didn't you know, should go around it. They flat out said it's banned. I also want to commend both of those groups, Bubba and NASCAR, for Bubba Wallace's Black Lives Matter car. That was something that, you know, ran around for 500 miles and that anybody who watched it had to see it. It wasn't a situation where, you know, it was a patch on a shirt. It wasn't a situation where he wore a, you know, I can't breathe shirt like he did before the race and then it went away. And then he had his normal paint job. It was a full-time paint job for the entire race, and I loved it. I love that it got the message out, that it shows solidarity, that it shows support, and that, you know, watching the race, you had no choice but to see it. And so, again, I want to say great job to those two. Um, they've already had a guy who races, I believe he races trucks, saying that he was going to retire. He was going to sell out the business. He was going to get out of NASCAR because he didn't like where it was going. Now, he did make the point in saying that he doesn't care about the flag. He care less about the flag, about the Confederate flag. It's just he wants free speech. A little contradictory, but in terms of he decided he wanted to sell out. Now, a lot of racing pundits are making the joke that he didn't, he never want to race. So how big of an impact is he going to have in NASCAR in general uh, is one thing, but he's already deciding that this is last season and he's going to sell out and retire. So could they lose 15% or 20% of their fan base who just decide that, you know, their pride in the Confederacy and the Confederate flag is just too strong and they decide to leave the sport. But I hope that NASCAR short-term loss equals long-term gain and that they can in turn get a new wave of younger fans 
who loved that stance and loved what they did and decided to support NASCAR. So it was a great job by them. And up next, we're going to go to our best for last. It's been a great show so far. We have a lot of great topics getting in today. And like I said, up next is our best for last. All right, guys, and we're back with this week's best for last segment. And this week, we're going to touch on the NCAA, USC, and Reggie Bush's weird love-hate triangle. Finally coming to an end with uh, the disassociation policy for Reggie Bush with USC coming to an end after a decade. So, long story short, uh, Reggie Bush's parents reportedly lived in a apartment his last year at USC for free. They were going rent free. And there was other incidents that Reggie Bush possibly making a few dollars on the side, aside from his NCAA uh, scholarship, aside from his USC scholarship, and that they basically came down really, really hard on USC. I'm talking about the vacation of wins, the loss of scholarships. They had a disassociation policy against Reggie Bush where he could not be associated with the university for a decade. When the decision came out, you had Reggie Bush ultimately give his Heisman back. Now, most people thought that Dan Slater was going to take the Heisman, but ultimately he gave it back almost a sign of solidarity trying to spare USC. We don't know how much it worked, but he gave his Heisman back. But the disassociation has ended, which I think is a dumb rule to begin with. Look, we all know Reggie Bush did on the field. I'm not old enough to have watched Barry Sanders. So my greatest college running back ever is Reggie Bush. And it's not particularly close. In a city with pro baseball, with a city with the Lakers, in a city with professional sports teams galore, and a transient city like Los Angeles that can be involved in beaches, that can have a very strong class divide with the poor areas, with the richer areas and things of that nature, Reggie Bush took over a city. He was the biggest star in Los Angeles. Everybody knew him. He had celebrities at college football games, he, from Snoop to The Rock to Will Ferrell, who were all going to USC football games on the sidelines, showing their faces because they wanted to watch Reggie Bush up close. We all know he won the Heisman on the field. I don't know why that's even a restriction, especially when it's not performing enhancing drugs. And now the NCAA is even changing their stance on what Reggie Bush did, which is basically profit from being him. He profited from being Reggie Bush of USC. He profited from his face and his ability, and the NCAA is even changing their stance. So I think they should find his Heisman, wherever it is, and give it back to him. They should, you know, put his name back in the record books, give him a Heisman vote, and give him everything that comes with being a past Heisman winner. Because... He did what he did on the field. He's the most scintillating college player I've ever seen. I mean, from the run against Fresno State to the dive-ins to the bush push against Notre Dame and all those other great moments that he had and really being the last all-time great, in my opinion, college running back. I mean, now you think about about Adrian Peterson, but I mean, he was great in college, but his production and his fame, a lot of times, in my opinion, came from the NFL. The world knew Reggie Bush as a freshman. The world knew Reggie Bush as a sophomore. You know, his moves were video game-like. I mean, there was stuff that you 
he was doing on the field that you couldn't even do in college football video games. And so when it comes to a situation like that, I am so glad that this, the disassociation ended. I am glad that he's back with the USC family where he belongs. And hopefully they give him his Heisman back, restore all of his awards and his accolades and give him his praise back. And so we can truly honor one of the greatest college running backs of all time. And that wraps up this week's episode. Uh, it was a great episode. Really had a lot of great topics. Uh, sports will be back soon. So, you know, in a few weeks, we'll be talking about games. We'll be talking about predictions for games and stuff like that. And I can't wait for that to happen. Uh, if you like what you heard this week, join us next week. Uh, we do this every week, Friday. Usually it comes out at 11 a.m. or noon, somewhere in there. Uh, we do this every week. Uh, follow Twitter at JTimesports, all caps. I repeat, at JTimesports for breaking news all in one spot on a multitude of sports. Also updates on the podcast in general. I hope you guys have a great day. Tell your friends about us. Tell your sports rivals about us. If you you know, want those guys to learn something, have a better debate of your own. Uh, I cannot wait for next week's episode. I hope you guys have a great day and catch you guys later.